Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm Kendall Y. And I'm Jordan Guest. All right, here we go. We're back. All right, Kendall, I have an idea. I just thought of this while I was listening to the music. Okay. We should get some wonder. We, we should do like a remix of that, of that song. Like almost Let's... make it like a, like a 90s rap hip hop version. Of the, uh, of the Hayden classical song? Yeah, dun, dun, dun. but just I, like I could hear it in my head. I, but I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, I don't know how to mix music and all that kind of stuff. So we'd have to, we'd have to find somebody on Fiverr or something. But I have no skills whatsoever in, in such such art. I used to listen to that's that used to be my favorite song when I worked at KFC for a while mm-hmm. as a as a software developer. That would be like my, I would sit down in the morning, have my coffee put on my headphones, listen to that song, get in the zone. That's, that's like straight that's, out of a movie. I feel like that's, yeah. I feel like that's, a, you know, that just sounds like a movie to me where you have like a really smart person who's just listening to classical music while they just grind. Oh, you, you were think in a movie. I'm, you think I'm smart? I, well, <laughs> I would not. Yeah. I just get it. Uh, uh, I tend to talk to smart people. Or at least people smarter than me. So, I am yes. a fan of I am a fan of classical music. Whenever I work, it's good. It's good focus material. Hmm. To try that out. All right. Well, I know we're a day late again because of Jordan again, but we are here nonetheless, doing another episode, bringing bringing the heat. I don't even know what episode this is. I'm not even going to count, but I think we're in the double digits. So that is good. Um, and yeah, Kindle is in an undisclosed location and I'm in an undisclosed location and we're just going to go for it. So on the agenda today, we are going to chat about in a piece that just came out um, from Kindle that is talking about um, how does Bitcoin, and we'll define what we mean by that, how does it scale to billions of people? Um, and then, yeah, I think we'll, we'll probably just chat about some news and maybe look at the markets, see if they're get, get some predictions. Are we going to finish the, the week up or down? So, um, yeah, still lots of news. Um, it, it almost feels like, I mean, there's a lot of like news about other stuff outside the market right now. Um, you know, with like social issues, it kind of feels like right now there's like almost a calm before the storm. Uh, in some ways, um, especially on the broader markets. I know there's a lot more regular pundits out there who are like screaming recession. Um, and whereas, ele- elections are getting close too. So that'll, yeah, there'll be fireworks around that time leading up to it. Yeah, for sure. We'll get some, we'll get some bombshells. We'll see if, uh, we'll see if the economy can heal at all before that happens or if, you know, people are still not feeling good about the economy. I saw I feel like the, overall, most people are, they do not feel good about the economy just generally. Oh yeah. Consumer uh, sentiment is in a, is in a, is in a garbage bin. Yeah. I saw a chart regarding politics. It was like the, you know, I was just like someone I saw on Twitter. So how do I know if it's right? But um, it was on Twitter. It's true for sure. It, it had to be true. Right. There's no misinformation that's allowed. On Twitter. No. Yeah. No misinformation. <laughs> Uh, it was like 
it was like the prediction markets of Republicans versus Democrats this November. And like a month or two ago, it was a widespread where it was like, there's going to be a red wave. But then after the Roe v. Wade overturning, it was like a collapse. And it was like, now it was actually back to being competitive. So I was like, well, the Republicans, they threw that one away. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see how long it lasts. I'd be curious. Um, But yeah, the elections will be very fun. I'm just generally a, um, I'm just a politics junkie. Um, Not really, I'm very much moderate, but I just think it's kind of fun. I think it's kind of entertaining. So yeah, so we'll have to, maybe we'll incorporate some of that into our podcasting. I'm not, I'm not unopposed. I'm definitely not opposed either. Um, Piss some people off. That'd be, I mean. I don't really have any opinions, you know, but it, it would be curious. I'd be, it would be like, I just like exploring the ideas, right? You know, if, if we get people, yeah. if we if I have people that are, have like strong opinions and that just becomes <clears throat> no fun, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I think coming at politics with a really open mind and essentially just assuming that you're wrong about whatever your stance is and being willing to hear other people out. That's, that's like the most fun part, I think, about talking about politics and then winning an argument or two is always, is always fun. Um, but yeah, there's uh, well, I mean, on even in the Bitcoin space, and we can talk about this real briefly. Um, getting into the politics side is is like one of my personal goals over the next few years, trying to um, play any role I possibly can in helping craft um, state, mostly I would say state level policy um, by connecting with connecting with folks. So. Um, yeah, I've got a fun opportunity later this month going to go to pretty much um, cheat off of the Texas Blockchain Council, how they've built their built their um, association that is the go-between between industry and, and politicians. And there's a group uh, in Kentucky that is starting up a similar uh, one. So I'm getting to go to that and be in the room there. And uh, yeah, it's like, it's right up the alley of like, politics meets bitcoin uh, so totally totally i i mean I'm, I'm of the opinion that a lot of this dig- digital finance digital assets cryptocurrency space is a uniquely american uh idea and phenomenon and uh when you know the way i think about it is there's a huge role for regulation regulatory agencies to play so there's a huge opportunity in this space. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also like an education piece of like, and here's where you have to get out of the way and let the market, let the market, you know, take this. Oh, place. definitely. But, but obviously, yeah, we need to create consumer protections and things like that and make sure that, you know, fraud is not being created. I mean, pretty much just the normal stuff, you know, that we've been doing since, you know, those, those scandals that happened in the early 2000s with accounting firms and, you know, pretty much you just got to make sure that there's their standards. And then there's other people who are outside actors who are looking over the shoulders of the industry and saying, are you, are you uh, living up to the standards? And those are like auditors. Right. And then as we're going to talk about today, um, this is actually a fun, this is a fun little segue. 
with the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network, you actually, um, you have a built-in auditor. And, uh, and you know, as Darren Feinstein, if people are not familiar with him, he's the CEO, founder of Core Scientific, a Bitcoin, one of the biggest Bitcoin miners. Um, you know, he, he is just, he's an, an accountant, like that's his original um, profession. And um, he is just, he, that's all he talks about, I feel like, is how the network itself essentially writes in transactions and makes it impossible for you to go back and change, which, you mm-hmm. know, is how fraud is created. Fraud is created is like, I take out cash or something, but then I, I do something with the books where I make it, where I hide it, right? And make it look like that transaction never happened or it happened in a different way. Um, as, as I'm sure we'll get into with uh, the Bitcoin, the actual peer-to-peer network and the ledger, you can't do that. So anyways, all that to say, yeah, bring it back to regulation and stuff. I just think that there's, I'm with you. I think there's a lot of fun opportunities. Um, and even if it's just education of politicians, mm-hmm. who are old, I actually think that that's don't the, understand. That's the main thing, right? The main thing is yeah. just education. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and that's just, again, that's why we do the podcast. You know, if anybody listens, that's fun, but we're just trying to contribute what we can to educate people like us who just work jobs or also people who are trying to make decisions um, that are going to affect a lot of people. So sorry, if I can just say something real quick, I think it's insane to me that we don't have this type of like high school class. Like why is there not a high school class for personal finance where it like teaches people, teaches the young kids, what, like, what's a mortgage, what's a bond, what's a stock. Like, how is that not part of our education system? That is insane. Sir, Um, this is an Arby's. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? But seriously, because the thing is, no, I'm I'm with you. you People that are like 30 years old and they don't even know like really how how to take out a mortgage. They don't even know how to buy a house. I mean, that's crazy. If a person's 30 years old, they need to be like on their way. Okay. They need to be. I need to have these things figured out. It's really, it's really, really tough. Like I'll get some people who, who will reach out to me and they'll say, I really need help with personal finance. But one, it, it's always a, it's pretty much charity work. If I end up actually even doing anything with it, because they can't pay you, they're already struggling. You know, they're already like, um, their cash out is either at or a little bu- above their cash in every month. And, um, so there's that piece. And then, okay, so you make it free. You make all this education free. Well, then there's, you're still dealing with like, well, what motivates a person? And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if they don't have skin in the game to, to uh, pull from Taleb, it's like, they're not going to, right. they're not going to be as likely to actually act on anything. So it's a really tough thing. And then the people who can afford who can afford pretty much like either business coaching or just personal finance coaching, they're the ones who are already like killing it. Right. And they're the ones who already know the tricks and they are getting richer. So it's, it's very, it's like a spiral. I don't know exactly how to fix it, Yeah, but I am a, with you. There's an, and then high school is tough too. Cause like high school, I mean, I took a personal finance class in high school, but it was, it was essentially just Dave Ramsey. And then, you know, 
you're not really taking anything serious, or at least I wasn't taking much of anything seriously school-wise in high school. So it's like, do you really retain anything? And then you have four years where you're just kind of goofing off going to college and stuff. And then you get out, out of college and you're like, oh shit, I, I wish I remembered what, what I learned in that class, if anything, but that was four, at least five years some, ago. At least some exposure is, is good though. Even if you like yeah. sort of forget it. Cause you can, there's something about like developing intuition that I think is valuable. I think, you know, when I think about the education system too, I don't, I saw a video the other day of like a high school class that they were teaching masonry. Like the, hmm. like the hat, like the, basically these students were in, in a gym and they were building like a little wall out of stone and like brick and mortar. And they were, okay. I was like, that is amazing. Like that is what should be taught in high school. Okay. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's like some students belong in the calculus class and some mm-hmm. students don't. Right. And I'm not yeah. even saying that like, it's the school's job to tell which student the student can pick, like the student should be able to pick which route they want to go. Yeah. Um, but I think, I don't know, <laughs> this is, I'm on my soapbox soapbox here, but uh, I, I do think that there's like, like we need to teach more like um, practical skills, practical education in our education. Yeah. I agree. I mean, you know, I was even thinking about something like what if, if what if our society went all the way back to like the most basic you know survival right you have did, to get food did you, you listen to, to the shelter did, you have to make tools i have to I'd ask be screwed you, did you listen to the joe rogan episode with duncan trussell is that where is that where you heard this from no oh man okay all right well we don't have to go down that rabbit hole but okay but I, 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 I mean essentially I yeah you. i mean my my skill set specifically um, and, and I guess maybe even yours a little bit, you know, if like, if totally. it really just came down to like, what can you grow? What can you kill? What can you, you know, make with your hands and fix with your hands? It's like, yeah, I would be on the low, t- <laughs> I'd be on the low end of the totem pole for sure. <laughs> so, so anyways, yeah, I'm well, with you. I think, I think teaching, teaching um, practical things is, is pretty cool. And then also, yeah, learn to code too. Maybe learn to code and learn how to kill a boar and like gut it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, my understanding is there is something to be said for learning just for the sake of learning, which is to say that like you are develop- developing your brain's ability to like think. Mm-hmm. So this is where you learn, you know, things like programming or, you know, more actually more theoretical things is what I'm trying to say, like computer science or physics or calculus. Those things are valuable, not actually for what you can do with them, but in what they do to like your neurochemical structures. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that there is a place for that, but I also think that like having practical skills is also a really valuable thing. And it's not even that you know, part of it is a discovery mechanism too. I don't think that kids can figure out what they want to do with their life until they start putting their hands on things. And so they, you know, and so like, if you have like this millennial generation where they didn't do anything practical until they were 25 and now they're like, well, I don't even know what I want to do. And I went, I spent several hundred thousand dollars on education that I just like, didn't know what I wanted to do. 
so so i think that there's something to be said in um practical education assisting people and discovering what they want to do you know i always knew that i wanted to work on computers because when i was like 10 years old i i this is a fun story i don't know okay. if i've said i might have i don't know if i've said this before my first interface with a computer um at least one where i was like trying to do something with the computer was downloading music through LimeWire. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah. Okay. For those who don't know, LimeWire was like an OG uh, pirating software. Basically you could pirate. It was a way to get free music and then you would put it on your iPod or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously this wasn't my first thing that I ever did, but it was the first time where I felt like I was like, Oh, I'm in control here. You know, like, oh, I, I, I know what I'm doing. Um, and I basically knew from that day that I was going to work with computers because I was like the degree of power that you get by being able to control a computer is insane. Um, so, but so so that was like a practical experience where I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. I, I like interfaced with the world. Um, I actually interfaced with like the metaverse really, but, uh, committed a crime. I committed a crime (laughs) and I'm forever damned for it. (laughs) Gosh, that's funny. No, that's a good story. <laughs> yeah, no, I think creating and creating a lot of those and then especially in childhood, but also just, I think just even throughout your life, I think normalizing, like doing a bunch of different things and kind of like hopping around and just being curious kind of your whole life, even into old age. I think that that's, it's a fun, it's a fun thing. Totally. You know, I know people will that's be like, like generalist for specialist, but it's like, I don't know. I feel like this, the generalist has more fun. Maybe the specialist makes more money, but. I think it's a matter, it's a matter of personal preference. I can say personally, one of my most enjoyable states of mind, the thing that I cherish the most, one of the things I cherish the most is what you just said, which is where I have this free space and I'm discovering and I'm like, Oh, what's over here? What's over this? What's this? What happens if I do this? And and then there has to be no pressure. There has to be no, like, you have to do this thing by this time. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, if I'm just like, or, you know, I do this on the weekends. I find myself doing this on like a Sunday morning on a Sunday morning. I will like find myself deep in my iPad. Like, you know, I'll be down a Wikipedia uh, rabbit hole. I'll be like 20 pages deep. I'm like, Oh my gosh, look at this thing. <laughs> like, <I'm> like <laughs> how did I end up here? <laughs> but uh, it's so much fun, dude. I love it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, okay. Let's jump into your article. This is great. Yeah. This is a organic conversation. Yeah. That's how it always happens for us. That's why I love doing these. Okay. Yes. I wrote an, I wrote an article. Um, I actually just published it today. So fresh off the press. So go read it. Go read it. I got to say, um, you know, I actually wanted to write a lot more here, but um, I'm not a very good writer. And I find that like, if I try to create like a fine tuned piece, it just like basically never happens because I'm, I'm like, I just give up eventually. So I just, I think I'm more of a strategy of like, I'm just going to keep writing things. Um, and it'll be kind of low quality, high quality, high wait low quality, high quantity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, no, it's good though. I mean, it essentially lays out you're pretty much talking about strategy to scale Bitcoin to billions of people. And I mean, the TLDR is it's most likely not going to be the Bitcoin, the asset, which is like the sexiest piece, I would say, if there is a sexy piece of Bitcoin. Um, it's at it's least the be... piece that's it's the piece that's in vogue right now, you know. Yeah. The but thing is it's gonna essentially be like the network, right? It's going to be the more the peer-to-peer, like the rails, more or less, right? Well, you know, a matter of which is more or less is a de- is a matter of debate. But okay. um, you know, let's take this back to I went to Asheville over the weekend, over the July 4th weekend. And I like to do these little trips like this where I just go and I have nothing to do. And I will just sit in like a coffee shop and I'll contemplate. I'll just like think about things and I write some and um, it's like, it's like the discovery process, like I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And what what I discovered this past weekend, I was like, you know, I feel like we're all sort of caught up in the here and now, but like, if we go back to basics of what Bitcoin is, like, in my opinion, the purest ethos of Bitcoin is the Jack Dorsey strategy, which is um, you're, it's, it's, an, it's something that exists to assist the underprivileged. And um, it's, a, it's a money. You see, the thing about the internet that's, that's just absolutely changed the world forever is the free flow of information. It used to be that in parts of the oppressed world, you know, you name it, people would, they would be stuck in their, in in isolation. They didn't even know that an outside world existed. They didn't know that all these, they didn't know there was like a, a library, an encyclopedia. They didn't even know these things exist, but the free flow of information changes everything because you can, all of these people now have their quality of life is so much better strictly on the basis that they're just more intelligent and, or, or I should say knowledgeable, right? There's a difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the ethos here is to bank the unbanked with Bitcoin. It's, it's, it's something that exists outside of the regulatory capture which means it's available to everybody. Everybody can use it. Okay. And that's really powerful. It's the same. It's it's just as powerful as like the free flow of information. You see right now, people across the world and more people than not live in situations where they, they're financially oppressed, like, and they don't have anything that they can even do about it. You know, even if they wanted to do something about it, they probably couldn't. So you know what Bitcoin, the purest ethos of Bitcoin is, I think this, it's, it's banking the unbanked. It's, it's a bottoms up thing, really. Um, I think, you know, like my shtick, the thing that I've, I've sort of come to a sobering realization is the past two or three years, I think Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies broadly have been co-opted by the top-down approach, right? I think, I think that the narrative has basically, there's a really good piece by Ben Hunt. I will link it in the show notes and it's called in praise of Bitcoin. And 
he he creates this narrative of what he calls Bitcoin TM, right? Bitcoin trademarked. Mm-hmm. And um, he's like, you know, the pure ethos of Bitcoin I love, but it's been corrupted by, you know, really it's, you know, I hate to say it, it's corrupted by guys like me and you. Like it's me and you who are like, we come in and we're like, oh, this thing is awesome. This is, you know, we kind of like, we're like, this is our thing. This is my thing now. And, um, and like, we're part of the developed world. We're two white men. We do pretty well for ourselves. Like, you know, it's actually the purest ethos of Bitcoin is actually not (laughs) really for us. Mm -hmm. Um, so, okay. I'm going to pause there. Someone's got, but someone's got to be the one who spreads the word because I think that's, that's the hardest part, right? Is, and this is just goes, doesn't even, this happens in, in the United States is like, if someone's working, they're just trying to make ends meet and they're working three jobs or whatever it is, right. Then they don't have any spare time, sadly, to like, think to dit, you know, think deeply about like topics, right. They're just like trying to figure out where's the next meal coming from kind of thing. And so it's almost up to, it's up to other people to bring the message to those people. And I don't know exactly, I don't know exactly the best way to do that, but I think everyone plays a role. I hear you. Um, I, yeah. So I, I'm, I agree with you. Like, but by no means am I speaking in absolutes here. Um, okay. You know, everybody, there's a reflexivity that occurs actually between the different dynamics and, and you actually want a top-down dynamic as well as a bottoms up dynamic and they kind of bounce back and forth. Yeah. The thing, the thing that I think I'm trying to highlight is that I think we're, we're too heavily tilted one direction mm-hmm. and we kind of need to like, you know, take a deep breath and go back and just realize that there's like, you know, it's like a mean reversion thing. We're just like reverting back to the mean. Um, yeah. And I think that people are going to be forced to understand um, Bitcoin in the future, in the very near future, just because in my, in my humble opinion, I think that we are, um, I think that a lot of governments are starting to lean more towards more of an authoritarian bent, more of a, Hey, let's watch what every citizen does and make sure we, we understand that. And then, you know, do with that information, what we will as a government. I just think that, and I think that that's going to, continue to happen globally. And I think people are going to look for alternatives Mm -hmm. um, to pretty much quasi escape that system, even though maybe from a geographical standpoint, they still live inside of certain jurisdiction, but you know what I'm saying? They're trying to, well, yeah, there's different ways ways to operate. There's different ways to like, to think about this. Like what you just described was a way was sort of like you're, you're, you're understanding the, the dynamics of the external system and you're trying to see like where where were the where will the pieces fall sort of like naturally on their own like mm-hmm. you know re- regardless of what um you know builders do regardless of what the new innovation entrepreneurship will happen where where will things just sort of fall and i think that that's a great way to look at things what what my piece does is is the other is the other side of that which is it's more of like an inside looking out perspective where, you know, we are the builders and um, we have to think about, you know, what can we do that'll change the dynamics even like, what, mm. will, what will we do that will change where the pieces fall? 
Um, so yeah, essentially bringing it to the normie. I mean, that's your, that's your word in there is like how to make Bitcoin appealing to the normal person or the normie. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So the piece is called, um, a sobering strategy of scaling Bitcoin to billions. And, um, the way that I, I tend to think about, um, software, you know, building software systems is <clears throat> I, I take a lot of inspiration from like Steve jobs. And the thing that I think Steve jobs really understood was there's, there's a, there's a hard reality that you have to ask. You have to, you have to deeply empathize with the end user, even if that's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. even if, even if you're doing like, you're, you're putting your mind in a state where it's like, Oh, I don't want to be there. Right. For, yeah. you know, for, for us, we, we think of Bitcoin and we think of all these things that we talk about all the time, but to the, to the normal, normal person, you know, this is the hard reality for Bitcoiners to accept the normal person will ask themselves the question, what can Bitcoin do for me? And then they will literally give themselves maybe three seconds, maybe three seconds. And they'll come to some conclusion based off of a number of factors. And if that conclusion is positive, then they will adopt Bitcoin. And if that conclusion is negative, then they will not adopt Bitcoin. And so you see the window of, of capture is, is very, very difficult to, to, to capture or like, you know, difficult to, to grab. And mm-hmm. the, you know, the end user will, will constantly ask themselves over time, you know, what can Bitcoin do for me? What can Bitcoin do for me? What can Bitcoin do for me? But the, the end user, the normal person, they don't. Okay. So let me read this sentence from my piece. <laughs> The normal person does not care in the slightest what Bitcoin is, nor its history, nor its technical fundamentals, nor running a node, nor how it competes with other currencies, nor how it's performing in the market, nor the memes, nor the projected moral values, which the culture hijacks. The normal normal person does not care about any of those things. Okay. All they care about is one simple thing. What can Bitcoin do for me? And so... Okay. So again, this is like inside looking out, we're trying to like, we're, 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 we're prompted with that question and we're trying to get them to convert to, they're they're trying to get them to have a positive answer such that they will adopt Bitcoin. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so in this piece, I lay out that there's, there's two parts of Bitcoin and people use the word Bitcoin and they use it amorphously and they, and anytime there's a Bitcoin debate, I can guarantee you that the people are just talking past each other because they're mm-hmm. using the word in different ways. Yeah. Um, so you have to be really, really precise in what you're, what you're trying to say. Um, so the two things in Bitcoin are the asset and the network. Um, the asset is what most people hear all the time. They hear, you know, it's us dollar price. There's 21 million of them. It's the monetary good. The what network people rich. <laughs> yeah. Number go up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
the network is the global system of computer nodes, which are communicating peer to peer over digital networks. And the, the network in, 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 it encapsulates, it, it houses the, the, adjet, the, sorry, the asset, the ledger, which represents the asset. Um, <clears throat> so trying to bring some things back together here, like the, I think that there's been too much of a tilt towards in like the, the, the narrative of Bitcoin towards Bitcoin, the asset. And we've sort of neglected Bitcoin, the network. And, and I, you know, like my honest opinion is that Bitcoin, the asset and like what, what people have dubbed like monetary maximalism, which is like this concept that, you know, it's, it's actually the other, it's like the outside looking in perspective, which is like, just because there's 21 million and there's a supply schedule, just because these things exist, it will take over everything. That's all that it requires. And, you know, that's like the monetary maximalism perspective. Um, and, you know, I actually, to be clear, I think that that is the most compelling narrative about Bitcoin, the normie thing. Like, I think that that is the most compelling narrative. However, it's insufficient. It is not enough to scale Bitcoin to billions of humans. It's, it will never work. And you can- You're talking you can, about like the HODL, the HODL strategy more or less. Yeah. Like the whole, like we're, we're HODLing, we're stacking sats, we're staying humble. We're, um, you know, this is a savings technology that will never scale. That's not going to scale to billions of people. Now that, that works for the top-down approach that works for, for wall street. That works, you know, frankly, it probably works for guys like me and you, because I do think that Bitcoin still has a ways to go up. Um, so it works for the people that are, you know, driving this narrative, right? But it's it's insufficient in scaling Bitcoin to billions of people. Um, right, because the only people who can actually even stick to that strategy are people who have money that they're just playing around with. You know, yeah. That they check don't your need. check your financial privilege, right? I mean, check your financial privilege. Yeah. Whereas the you, people who have had to sell are either people who are irresponsible with leverage. Or they're people who they put money in that they really should, they didn't have any business putting it in because they, if they lost it, they were going to be in a bad situation. So then they got scared and they had to pull out what they, what was left, you know, they had to, they had to, um, their time preference was too high or too, yeah, too high. Totally. So this is, this is the sobering reality that is going to be difficult for the monetary maximalists to accept this concept that Bitcoin will be a common currency is false. It will never be a common currency. And, um, you know, <laughs> that's my opinion. There's going to be, you know, people can debate all day long about it. Here's the, here's the, the reality that I see. The reality that I see is that a fixed supply monetary system will always be too volatile in comparison to an elastic supply monetary system. And, and therefore, again, we're talking about people that are financially underprivileged. These people cannot stomach the volatility. It's not, it's not possible for them to do. They have to have some unit, which is stable. 
the volatility in, in Bitcoin, the asset is the number one issue, which will um, prevent Bitcoin, the asset, you know, the monetary maximalism alone scaling to billions of humans. It will not ever scale to billions of humans on that fact alone. But the so, volatility that you see is, it's only if you think about Bitcoin in USD terms, right? Well, you have it's to because think- Because we haven't actually adopted Bitcoin as a unit of account yet. We've, we've people have begun to adopt it as store value. And then some people use it as medium of exchange, but almost nobody uses it as a unit of account. They still use the dollar. Nobody ever, ever will, nobody will use it as a unit of account. I mean, not, so. not at an, an industrial scale. This is what I'm talking about. See, there's a difference okay. between like the Bitcoiners live in a little bit of a bubble and they have a, that's like a privileged bubble, but like, and I am in that bubble. I want to be clear, <clears throat> but I'm able to, you know, get outside of it too. The, if you're talking about scaling an industrial economic good like that, it, it won't scale because of the volatility. Um, now, it, it's like, I'm not speaking in absolutes here. <laughs> Even though, you know, how do you speak without speaking in absolutes? It's difficult to do. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm admitting that there is, a, there, there is a role to be played for this monetary maximalism, this concept of fixed, fixed supply monetary system. And I think that that role is actually much, much more significant than it is today. Okay. That's not financial advice, but I think that that role alone is much, much more significant than it is today. But again, what we're thinking about here is not about like, we're not really thinking about Bitcoin's price per se. Like what we're thinking about is how is Bitcoin going to scale to billions of humans? Mm -hmm. That's what, that's the thing that we're trying to solve. And you want that to happen because there's a reflexivity between the two things. If all you care about is number go up, then you actually you, you also want it to scale to billions of humans because that will make number go up even more, which will then make it scale to more humans, which then you know there's a there's a virtuous loop there. Um, so um, so anyway, so the focus is you know how do we scale to billions of humans? And my point is that the the volatility of the monetary good is too excessive to scale to billions of humans. So. But the barrier of to going back to like banking the unbanked, the barrier to enter the system is so low versus the barrier to enter the current system, fair, especially fair. for people outside of the state. Because I feel like every time I hear any debate, I feel like you have to put it up against how the current system Relative. works. Yeah. And it is, it, it is literally, okay, this is a great example. Raven has a check from... Uh, that we got for pretty much like a tax credit thing. It's made out to her business. She tried to go to the bank yesterday. Hold on one second. I declined this call. Um, and they literally wouldn't deposit it because it didn't have one word on the check or something. Like it, she has to open up a new account for her business or something. All I'd say is like the banking system, every time I have to deal with the bank, I'm like, this is so I to- inefficient. I, I totally hear you. But yeah. let me let me introduce you this this brand new entrepreneurial uh, <laughs> uh, service called Tether or USDC. Okay, you see, <clears throat> the volatility is the problem. Okay, that's 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 the thing that I'm focusing on. 
Okay. Um, and, and there are going to be solutions which solve the volatility, which will be accessible to, to the people that, that are having the problems, the problems that you're describing. Mm-hmm. And so again, like I, I want to be very clear, like I am still most of, <laughs> you know, you know, I'll put, I'll say this, like most of my personal wealth is in Bitcoin. Okay. So by no means am I bearish on Bitcoin, the asset, mm-hmm. um, to be totally clear, you're just trying I'm, to figure out how to scale. How does it scale to billions of humans? That's right. Um, <clears throat> and the truth is that Bitcoin, the asset, doesn't actually scale to billions of humans, and it never will. But that doesn't mean that Bitcoin, the normie thing, can't scale to billions of humans. You see, because because there's also Bitcoin, the network. Okay, mm-hmm. B- Bitcoin, the network, is the thing which is valuable to billions of humans. And what they want, what billions of humans really want, okay, this is the holy grail. I'm going to lay it, cards on the table. This is, this is what this is all about. This is all about building a stable value unit on the Bitcoin network. And it has to, but see, it has to be out, it has to be a commodity money. It has to be outside the scope of regulatory capture. You see Tether, USDC, these things are inside the scope of regulatory, regulatory capture. There has to be some sort of monetary asset, which is a stable unit, which, um, which is outside the, the scope of governments and which um, exists on Bitcoin the network and interfaces with Bitcoin the asset. You see, mm-hmm. that's what needs to happen. That's how you scale Bitcoin, the normal thing, to billions of humans. Okay. I mean... I like when you ask the question, what is, what can Bitcoin do for me? Like, and there's billions of people who ask that question to themselves. My answer is it provides freedom. It pretty much, you don't have to rely and that's the network and the asset. And I just think for billions of people that is that it makes sense to at least have some of their wealth, some of their quote unquote savings account in it and be able to transact in it if they ever needed to. If they ever needed to walk across a border and they had and they weren't allowed to take anything with them, they can take that with them. I just mm-hmm. think that that'll, that's why, I mean, that's why it convinced me, especially, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm worried about censorship type stuff just generally. Um, and so to me, it's like, oh, it's kind of a no brainer because it provides freedom for me. And I think, and that's coming from a person who is lives in the country with the highest degree of property rights, you know, ever in the history of the world, you know what I'm saying? Like if I'm worried about censorship and I'm worried about freedom here in I'll, I'll, I'll disclose I'm in the free state of Florida right now. You know, it's like, (laughs) (laughs) and it's like, you know, billions of people in China, billions of people in, or the like billion people in China, billion people in India, um, people in wherever, right. To me, it's like the case is so much stronger for them than it is even for me. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying and I think, I think it actually, I could be wrong. I want to, I want to say that I could definitely be wrong because what you're saying really is the brand value of, of Bitcoin. You're describing like a brand element, the narrative, 
which is freedom. And I think that that is incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful and potentially sufficient in scaling to billions of humans. Okay. So I, I will admit that I could be wrong here. The thing that I will highlight to you <clears throat> is, you know, you know, brands like this are, can be sort of a fragile thing. They can, mm-hmm. they can break, they can break down. You see reflexivity in brand and, um, and like brand values cuts both ways. That's so like, that's why you'll see mania on the way up and then collapse on the way down and it can collapse extremely quickly. So the fragility is the one thing that I would, I would, um, point out to that, to the, to the, to yours, to the perspective you laid out there. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that, I think that there's going to have to be a, <clears throat> we'll call it, I don't know what we call it. There has to be some new cryptocurrency <clears throat> that is Bitcoin native, but it's a stable unit. Yeah. Okay. And then, so then we get into the, the conversation of like, what's the brand value of that thing? Maybe you call it uh, bit USD or bit bit dollars, bit dollars. Okay, that's what I was thinking. I was trying to recall what I thought over the weekend. I think okay. you call it, I think you call it bit dollars or something like that, and and that's that has all the same brand associations that you're describing of freedom, oppression, private privacy. It has all those same brand uh, values, but mm-hmm. it's also a, it's also a stable unit. And you know, actually, really, what needs to happen is it needs to be, this is, we're really talking holy grail here. It needs to be a stable unit to a basket of commodities, of real world resources, not the financial exposure to the US dollar. It needs to be a stable value unit native to the Bitcoin network. We'll call it bit dollars, which has all the same ethos of Bitcoin, but its price is stabilized to a basket of real world use or resources. If that ever comes into existence, and oh, sorry, one more thing. There's no company. There's maybe you don't even know who created it. It may have to have a Satoshi. What if Satoshi came back and he created that? Okay. The second uh, coming. The second coming. Okay. If all, if everything that I just said happened, then that would scale to billions of humans. And Bitcoin, the asset, would benefit from that. Okay. It would benefit from that because Bitcoin is like the gold. The same way that we went from a gold standard to a fiat standard. We're going to have a similar dynamic where Bitcoin is sort of like this like fixed supply monetary good, which is sort of like an insurance policy on the elastic supply monetary good, but it's not the thing that's used as common currency. It's more of like a savings thing. Um, I think the yeah. same thing, the same thing will play out digitally. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, I, I just, my head goes to just, it just needs more time. I just think that there's still so much, there's still so many people who, if they heard about all the benefits and even if just they heard it provides freedom, I think that simply that um, in the, and I think it's in the Western world and it's in the non-Western developing world. Um, Cause I think in the Western world, people have seen enough people that they respect who their Patreon gets shut down or 
you can't send stuff to their organization through PayPal anymore because they're too fringe or whatever it is. And you look at them and you're like, well, I don't think they're that fringe. What if that happens to me one day? Like that's kind of what runs through my head on the Western side. And then, yeah, I mean, it's in my head. Yeah. It's so much more obvious, but I think the other piece is the adoption. Just looking at just the adoption over the last 13 years, right? 13 or more than that, 13, 14 years, whatever it's been. I mean, I think it just needs more time. I just think going back to like Preston's closing pitch at the conference in, in Miami, it was like, just give it five more years and just wait. And there's so much that's going to happen. Cause well, I think that I COVID think that bo- both are true. It up, right. I think it's true that there needs to be more time for more, more adoption, but, and that will definitely happen again, you know, I'm not speaking in absolutes here and I'm not even bearish. I'm actually bullish. Uh, yeah. When I'm like, let's see right now. You, just I think- need, you want stability. Like that's, that's the main thing that I hear you saying is like the stability not being there here's, is a here's, huge hurdle. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. Let's say you have a billion people come online over the next decade, mm-hmm. which all live in extremely impoverished conditions, extremely impoverished. Mm-hmm. And they hear about this freedom technology, Bitcoin. And they're like, oh, wow, I'm going to convert my money to Bitcoin. And then the price of Bitcoin drops 50%. Now, how does that reflect on the brand value of Bitcoin for those, for those people? So you, have, you have to put yourself in their shoes. Okay. Right. See, yeah. that is a big, that's a brand destruction. That's, a, that's destructive towards the brand. So yeah. <clears throat> the volatility is the issue and it will not be solved. And it's not intended to be solved. By the way, this whole bit dollars things that I'm like, you know, dreaming, daydreaming about is potentially not even pragmatically possible. It may not even be a possibility to build such a system for a number of technical reasons, which I can go into. But, um, and it may be that a USDC or a tether is the industrialized solution, in which case, yeah, I think that tether and USDC could cannibalize some of Bitcoin's market cap eventually, eventually. Now we're not anywhere close to that, but you know, I'm just talking like very large scale here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting conversation to have for sure. So, but I really do. I, I love the piece. I love taking the focus off, obviously always taking the focus off of the number go up to me is a good thing. I just think mm-hmm. that people, biddle. they really need to try to get that. Yeah. Time to build. And then also time to lower your time preference. I mean, I think that's the hard truth that a lot of people just need to hear generally, like take Bitcoin completely out of the, out of the conversation. People just need to understand generally you should be planning for the future at all times, whether it's your skill set, your money, your food supply, whatever it is. Right. Um, so, and then Bitcoin is just this like really nice reinforcement mechanism. I feel like to, to pretty much drive your time preference even lower uh, if it already was low. So, well, that's the same. Totally. It's a contrarian, well, it's a contrarian piece, you know, so don't, don't shoot, don't shoot me. <laughs> well, I would say in some ways you're a contrarian guy, so it's on brand. That's right. And being a contrarian in the Bitcoin space is 
is a difficult thing because oh. everyone in the Bitcoin space already thinks they're contrarian. That's right. But then they're do they actually fall not. into being, yeah, do they <laughs> fall into groupthink with other Bitcoiners? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So always think for yourself, everyone. That's don't, all. It's part of the, don't I trust verify. Yeah. I think it's just part of like the, the adoption journey, you know, to go through these types of weird cultural um, experiences. Yeah. But I do think that the HODL thing is going to work for, for a lot of people. And then I think at certain points you, I think it was Preston who was talking about this. Essentially he, he was saying eventually the, the, it will be worth so much that you'll just be incentivized to actually spend it, to spend some of it, you know? Well, if you spend some of it, then that creates sell pressure, which makes the price go down. Yeah. And so you're saying that that's the volatility piece. That's the volatility. Yeah. There's, but it's no, only, there's no escaping it. But you, but you agree the volatility only exists <laughs> if you're thinking of it in terms of U.S. dollars. Well, no, the volatility exists in terms of purchasing power. It just so happens that the U.S. dollar has a, a massive monopoly on unit of account. And I think it's a fool's errand to think that you know, Bitcoin is anywhere close to overcoming that monopoly. I don't know if that will ever even happen. Yeah, no, I think that that'd be very difficult. But I mean, if I'm just thinking, like even when we were at the conference and someone was like, yeah, that's going to be 20,000 sats. Well, people don't realize. I'm not even like thinking about what that really is in my head. I'm just like, well, as a percentage of the sats that I have, that's not a lot. So I'll give it 20,000 sats for a book or whatever. I want to say one more thing, which is that, Wall Street, we'll just call it Wall Street or the financialization or what Ben Hunt writes about in this piece that I'll link. You know, they can play this game on the poor people. And let me explain it to you. They can play a game where um, they can jack up the price of Bitcoin at will. And governments could do this too. They could jack up the price of Bitcoin. Let's say Bitcoin runs to $200,000 a coin. That market cap is now way beyond the reach of any sort of bottoms up reach. The poor people have just gotten a lot poorer in that scenario. And, And they have no capacity to even capture that. And the further it runs away, exponentially more difficult it becomes to to normalize the, um, the wealth disparity. So, and I think, you know, my honest opinion is that has actually already happened. And so when I, when I hear this monetary maximalism concept of like, well, just stacks, everybody stacks sats, it's saving technology, you know, like the cynical part of my brain is thinking, you know, that's what wall street wants you to do actually, because what you're doing is you're funding them. You're giving money to them because they've jacked the price up beyond what the real market value is said, said differently. If you took these, you know, wall, again, wall street, wall street TM, if you took wall Mm -hmm. street out of the picture and all you had were hardworking, you know, citizens of the world that were, you know, you know, hardworking individuals that were in the market, the market cap of Bitcoin would be way less than it is today. Um, so so you see, this is the problem with a fixed supply monetary system is that the financiers will always outmaneuver the little guy and they're not the little guy. This just doesn't stand a chance. I'm sorry. 
Yeah. No, I mean, not at this market cap. Like once the market cap is higher, just generally, once there's more adoption, then it's a lot more difficult for even the, these big players and, and sovereigns to manipulate the price because they've got to bring so much more liquidity to make it go up or down, right? I don't think it's like, I think my commentary is not on a relative manipulation perspective in terms of like moving the market cap around. I think it's more about on the absolute basis of how much is the market cap in aggregate for mm. for the for the regular person to buy a Bitcoin. And, right. and I think it's already too high. I, I think that we're already past that level. So I, I think we've already lost that game. Yeah, but you can still get what, I mean, probably, I don't even know how many, it used to be like 2,500 sats per dollar. I don't even know what it is now. Well, see, it's still More beneficial. It's it's still, <clears throat> it's, it's still good to play into that game because the number can still go up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think what I'm trying to say is that like, um, it's in Wall Street's best interest that this thing is always volatile, and Wall mm-hmm. Street has already co-opted to level to the level where they can keep it volatile forever. Okay. See. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Well, I'm gonna have to jump off. I've got to got to call it 10:30 here. But okay. That was good. I think that was really good, and we didn't get to any news. Um, but there's always next week. So we'll talk about it next week. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally down about getting working some politics in. Okay. All um, right. You're into that. If you want to, if you want us to be censored, <laughs> just, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the best thing. That's the best part about podcasting is it's the most censorship resistance or resistant, um, media. I think that there is that's right so, cool um i'm just trying to think it. if there's any yeah if there's any announcements i don't think so that's all right it. we'll see well, you guys we'll see you next guys. week yep see you guys